Good morning. Good morning. I hope you're doing well. Um, it's good to be back together again, continuing the story of Solomon, a king from several thousand years ago. A story that's an old, old story, but a story that will teach us a lot today, that leads us back to understand who we are, that leads us forward to look to Jesus, the true king, and understand more about him and, um, and see how we can walk with him and live under King Jesus. That's really what our story is about. Even though it starts with Solomon, uh, we'll be ending with Jesus and looking to him. But before we do that, I wanted to apologise to those of you who are here last week. I was not feeling particularly well, but also just not really on form um, preaching-wise. I think I was a little bit sloppy, uh, a little bit muddled in the kind of uh, in the way that I was dealing with things. So I wanted to apologise to you for not doing a particularly good job last week. So let's pray that it would be better this week that we would... Um, well, you'd be better served by me uh, and with the Lord's help that, that we would hear what he's saying to us this week. So Solomon from 1 Kings chapter 8, if you want to be flicking it up. And as you go, let me ask you, have you ever been a part of a really historic moment? I mean, something in history that's happened that you were there to witness. Eyewitness. Uh, we all watched on TV. Well, maybe not all of us, but a good number of us. Uh, the King's Coronation not too long ago. Or I was there in Trafalgar Square in 2005, when the England and Wales cricket team uh, celebrated finally defeating the Australians in the Ashes. It was an amazing test series of cricket. If you're not into cricket, I'm sorry. But I, have, I love cricket, especially England cricket. Um, and I was there to see Freddie Flintoff and Kevin Peterson and Michael Vaughan and lots of people who've gone on to become legends of, of the game. Uh, walk into Trafalgar Square with a tiny, tiny little trophy. And finally, we'd beaten the Aussies. It felt like a really historic occasion. And I was there. I was there for it, rejoicing with a lot of people in Trafalgar Square. I wonder if you've ever been to a historic moment like that. I hope you've been through many in your own life, whether it was um, the birth of a child or a significant birthday or anniversary or um, a wedding day or something like that in your own life that you can look back to that you've got just really clear memories and you think, yeah, there's a flag to mark a really important point in my life. Well, the story that we're looking at today is extremely significant. It's, if you like, it's the end of the story of the Exodus. It's what we've always been looking forward to for almost 500 years from the time that the people of Israel get to escape from the horrors of slavery in Egypt. They spend years and years wandering in the desert, finally making it into the land of Canaan, but things aren't quite right for many years. There's struggles and difficulties and enemies and injustices and evil and darkness and death. And it's really sad for a long, long time. People are trying to worship God, but, but it's hard to work out how to do that or where to do that um, or when to do that and there's lots of enemies getting in the way of doing that and so eventually we get to the story of Solomon building the temple and bringing back home the Ark of the Covenant this kind of golden box which had Moses's Ten Commandment slabs in there and at one point it had had his staff in there and a little pot of manna as well um, they bring that Ark of the Covenant which is kind of the symbol of God's presence it's they sometimes call it his footstool the symbol of his presence in the world they finally bring that into the temple this new beautiful stunningly beautiful golden glorious garden of a temple that Solomon's built in the previous chapters before chapter 8 
Um, Solomon's built this place. Well, actually not just Solomon, but the world has built this place. They've got cedar from a country far to the north. They've got helpers from all over the place in different countries. Gentiles come together with all of their treasures and help Solomon and his people to build one of the most glorious structures that the world has ever seen. A wonder of the ancient world, Solomon's temple. And they bring together the ark, God's presence, and the temple which is going to be the symbol, the lasting symbol of God's presence on earth. And that's what's happened up to the up to now, between kind of chapters 5, 6, 7, and the beginning of chapter 8. They bring the ark in, and once they've done all of that, the priests have finished their, their job. They, they, they get out of that kind of middle room of the temple, and the cloud comes down. The cloud of God's presence fills the temple. That's what's happened so far in this story. I'll read to you the next bit, but what's happened? Solomon has built this glorious golden garden of a temple, reminding us a lot about Eden. Solomon is another Adam. He's not going to be the final second Adam yet, but he's another Adam-like character who's bringing peace to the land, who's bringing um, beautiful things into being, who's bringing light where there was darkness, who's bringing life where there was death. And um, so the temple's built, the ark comes home, and God moves into the neighbourhood. In um, Eugene Peterson's phrase, God moves into the neighbourhood, the glory cloud of God's presence that happened back on a mountain called Sinai just after they'd escaped from Egypt. That comes down and, and so God's presence is with his people. He lands on earth. Heaven meets earth. And what happens? Well, there's a verse in Isaiah that sums it all up. This is what the temple is all about. Isaiah 56, the end of verse 7, Isaiah 56 verse 7 says... Um, foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, people from far distant nations who hold fast to his covenant. These, God says, I will bring to my holy mountain. Temple was built on the hill in Jerusalem. These I'll bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. He's talking about the temple. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For, this is the sentence I want us to keep in our head today. This explains everything. For my house will be called the house of prayer for all nations. So my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's what's going on in chapter eight. You're seeing what the temple's for, that it's God's place where he comes to earth. God moves into the neighborhood. What do you do at the temple? You pray and you meet God in the temple. And who gets to do that? Well, not just the Israelites, it's everybody. Everybody who turns to God can meet him in the temple. And what? Well, that's the question. Okay, my house of prayer for all nations. That's what we're going to look at today. Let me read to you the rest of chapter 8. We're going to start from verse 22 um, and read on. And I want you to see if you can spot those things. See how God comes close, how it's his house. See what prayer has to do with it all. And see if you can spot the role of all nations. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands towards heaven and said, Lord, the God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep the covenant of love with your servants, you continue wholeheartedly in your way. You've kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth, you've promised and with your hand, you fulfilled it as it is today. Now, Lord, the God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said, you shall never fail to have a successor to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your descendants are careful in all they do to walk before me, faithfully as you've done. 
And now, God of Israel, let your word that you promised, your servant David, my father, come true. So Solomon's addressing God. He's the king, representing all the people. Bring them, if you like, bringing them into God's presence and asking God to be present with his people, asking him to be the promise-keeping God that he has been for David, to be that for Solomon, and not just for Solomon, but for all the people, to keep his promises, his covenants um, with them, that they would be his people and he would be their God. And then he says this, how true is this? But will God really dwell on earth? That's verse 27. The heavens, even the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. So it's not a little trinket. It's not a magic toy, this temple, that, you know, if you happen to be in there, then God will be sort of magically um, forced to look after you. No, this is a place that's a representation. It's the footstool. It's a place where God has put his name, but it doesn't contain him completely, right? He fills it up, but it doesn't put him in a box. We're still being humble, and that's something that really marks out Solomon in his early years, somebody who bows before God and lets realizes that God is God and he is not. Will God really dwell on earth? How much, uh, even the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this temple I have built, yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. Lord my God, hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open towards this temple night and day, this place of which you said, my name shall be there. God had promised that to David, that his son would build a temple and that he put his name there, that, um, that it would be his place, that he would come and meet his people there, that that's where you could know God. May your eyes be open towards this temple night and day, this place of which you said, my name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplication. It's just a, another word for asking God for things. Hear the supplication of your servant and your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. That's a beautiful line, and it's the theme of the whole of this prayer and the rest of the chapter. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. When anyone wrongs their neighbour and is required to take an oath, and they come and swear the oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven and act. Judge between your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing down on their heads what they've done, vindicating the innocent by treating them in accordance with, your, with their innocence. So, God, would you be our judge? Would you judge what's right and wrong between us? Would you hear us and help us? When your people Israel, from verse 33, have been defeated by an enemy because they've sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and give praise to your name, praying and making supplication to you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land that you've given, that you gave to their ancestors. Can you hear those themes? Lord, this is the place where we meet you. So when we look to this place, when we come and pray here, would you listen? Would you hear? Would you look? And would you forgive? Solomon carries on praying for other situations, for drought, for plagues and famines. And these are all things that God had promised would happen to his people if they turned away from him. But Solomon is praying that if they turn back to him, would he hear them still and forgive and bring them home? And then have a look down at verse 41. This is an interesting one, right in the middle of the prayer. As for the foreigner who doesn't belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray towards this temple, then hear from heaven 
your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people, Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. Isn't that a beautiful prayer? When they hear about you and come close, would you hear them and come close and answer? Isn't that beautiful symmetry? When they hear about you, and of course they're going to because you're just wonderful, oh God, would you hear them and answer their prayers too? Can you see the spreading love, the spreading glory, the spreading joy of this kind of new Adam character? It's not enough to just have a little garden privately to ourselves, where we enjoy God and God comes and blesses us. Really, God deserves to be known by every nation. And those people need, there's no greater joy than for them to come and know the God who made them. This isn't just a private thing, Solomon says. It isn't just my personal temple for my personal people to know my personal God in private. This is something public. This is something for people to look at and think, I've never seen light as bright as that. I want to go closer. I've never seen wisdom as rich and deep and unexpected as that. I, I want to know that. I've never seen a God who's quite like this. I want to know that God. Does it remind you of any other stories in the Old Testament? Ruth, if you know that story of a woman from a far away, really quite evil tribe, who comes close and hears about the God of Israel and and won't let her mother-in-law go until she takes her home to Israel to belong to this God and to belong to that people. She's one of the people who Solomon maybe has in mind or all the way down through the centuries to, to the guy we called the Ethiopian eunuch, which is in Acts, I think it's Acts chapter 10. Um, um, uh, no, that's wrong. You can look it up. The Ethiopian eunuch who meets a guy called Philip and he's been up to the temple to try and find God and Philip introduces him to Jesus, who we'll come to a little bit later on. It's a beautiful bit right in the middle of this prayer, but let's carry on reading. Uh, from verse 46. When your people, Israel, when they sin against you, for there is no one who doesn't sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to their enemies, who take them captive to their own lands far away or near. And if they have a change of heart in the land where they're held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors and say, we've sinned, we've done wrong, we've acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies, who took them captive and pray to you towards the land you gave their ancestors, towards the city you've chosen and the temple I've built for your name, then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause and forgive your people who've sinned against you. Forgive all the offences they've committed against you and cause their captors to show them mercy. Solomon's praying almost prophetically for all the different things that are going to happen to Israel in the rest of the story of the kings and into the rest of the Old Testament. And they actually match curses that, that God said, things that would happen to Israel if they turned away from God. You can read about them in Deuteronomy 28. Defeat by your enemies. If you turn away from God, well, then he won't help you when you're in trouble. Drought. If you turn away from God and break the promises that he's made to you, then heaven is going to be closed to you and the rain won't fall. If you turn away from God, your maker, then don't be surprised if the world begins to fall apart before you and plagues and famines and locusts and all these destroying things start to come and wreck your environment because you've turned away from the God who made it. And if you turn away from the God who's your home, don't be surprised if you were put out of your home like Adam and Eve were in exile. So defeat, drought, plagues and famines and 
exile. Those are the things that God promised would happen to Israel if they turned away. And those are the things that are going to happen in the story. Bit of a spoiler. Over the next few years and decades in the stories that we go to, people will turn away from God. And God will say, okay, if you want to live like that, then fine. And Solomon's praying, Lord, when that happens. And look, when people sin against you, and there isn't anyone who doesn't sin, he says in 46, I know what we're like. I know what I'm like. I know what humanity is like, what Adam and Eve were like from the beginning. When we turn away from you, Lord, would you, would you hear us when we turn back? Would there still be a chance to come home? Solomon is praying for that. And if you like, he's opening up a channel of communication between us and God. God is moving into the neighbourhood through Solomon's prayers, through Solomon saying, Lord, when we speak to you, would you hear us? Would you speak to us and would we listen to you? Um, sadly, in the story of the kings, almost none of them make the most of what Solomon asks for because God grants it. Did you know that? Chapter 9, have a look at chapter 9, verse 3. The Lord said to Solomon in a vision he has after this, I've heard the prayer and plea you've made before me. I've consecrated this temple which you've built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. So God says yes to his prayer. When people look to me as they look towards this temple, I'll forgive. I'll bring them home. And so what's the temple about? It's a place that carries God's name, where, if you like, his presence is there. We know his presence can't even be fitted in the universe. But this is a place where God chooses, God promises to be. That if you go to this place, even if you look towards this place, even if you're somebody who's not people of Israel and turn your heart towards this place, then he'll hear and he'll answer. It's, a, it's his place, a place of prayer for all nations. Um, if you want a few uh, things to think about what the temple is all about, as you go back and read those previous chapters and think it through a little bit, four things that the temple is all about, are four ways that people meet God in his place. The first is that they have fellowship with him, right? That they meet him. And that Yahweh, the creator of the whole world, settles on earth. He moves into the neighborhood in the temple. So the temple is about fellowship. It's also about feasting and togetherness. Fellowship, feasting, as in with each other and the people. They often have feasts that center around the temple. And then it's about facts. And they get taught by the priests from the temple. That's where they go and they read God's word and they understand his reality. So that they can cut with the grain of that reality and wisdom. So the temple is about fellowship with God feasting with each other, about facts where they learn some teaching, and it's about forgiveness. Isn't that all over Solomon's prayer? This temple is a place where you meet with God, you meet with others, you hear his teaching, and you're granted forgiveness. In the temple, that happened through sacrifices uh, in different ways, and that's really for another day. But what about for us now? Do any of those things ring a bell? When you think of the disciples in the, in the New Testament, in the stories about Jesus, where do they go to be close to God, to have fellowship with him? Where do they go to feast and be brought together? Where do they go to learn facts, to learn about God's reality? Where do they go for forgiveness? It's not a building anymore in the New Testament. How does God move into the neighbourhood in the New Testament? Actually, Eugene Peterson, when he uses that phrase, isn't talking about the temple. He's talking about Jesus in John chapter 1, where it says that the Word, who was there from the beginning, 
that's a way of talking about Jesus, who's God, who's been there, who's created us, who was there before anything was made. Jesus was there and he, the word, became flesh and tabernacled in Greek. Uh, tempted, came to know us, um, came close to us, made his dwelling among us. Eugene Peterson says, commentating on that, he says, that's God moving into the neighbourhood. That's Jesus who really is the temple now. Because by the time Jesus came, this temple had been knocked down, rebuilt, knocked down, and then rebuilt again. <laughs> rebuilt by uh, Nehemiah, knocked down, and then rebuilt by one of the Herods. That's the temple that Jesus went to. And Jesus stands there in John chapter 2 and says, knock this temple down, and in three days I'll build it again. And do you know what he's talking about? The people are scandalised because they think he's talking about the stones and the temple that's taken a long time to build and very expensive to build. But Jesus isn't talking about the building anymore. He's talking about himself. Where the disciples go? Where do we go for fellowship, closeness with God, for feasting and gathering and belonging together, for facts and teaching and truth? Where do we go for forgiveness? We go to Jesus. Do you see that Jesus is the temple? He said it himself, right? Tear this temple down, talking about his body, and I'll th three days later build it up again. He's talking about his death for us that would forgive us once and for all, that would sweep away all of our brokenness, that he's taking defeat, right? Defeat by our greatest enemy, Satan, that he was thirsty and under drought spiritually, forsaken by God, that he suffered all of, all of the darkness of decreation, he suffered death and he was exiled. He died outside of the city wall. He was taking all the curses that we deserve for turning against God. Jesus, who is God himself, who lived a perfectly beautiful life, who never broke any of God's laws, who never turned away from God, even for a fraction of a second. Jesus, the perfect son of God, was exiled, was under the curse of plagues and famines, was under drought, heaven was shut. He was defeated instead of us. And then three days later, death couldn't hold him any longer. It was finished, it was done. And he came back to life again to be the living temple, to be the place where we find God. And you can come close to him in Jesus, where we find feasting and we come close to each other in Jesus. And we go around his table and we eat bread and wine, his body and his blood, and it draws us together. And we eat after the meeting and we eat in each other's houses and we have rooted groups in all sorts of different places where we meet together and meet with Jesus as we meet with each other. We have fellowship with God and feasting with each other in Jesus and we have facts he teaches us as we learn about him. As I'm teaching you now, as you learn, as you read and talk, about Jesus with each other, and we find, most of all, forgiveness. What Solomon was asking for here, we find ultimately in Jesus, not in the sacrificing of bulls and goats and all the stuff they ended up doing at the temple later on. That was good, but it was just a picture of him. So do you want to know forgiveness? Do you want to know closeness and fellowship with God? Do you want to know what's really true and get some facts about life? Do you want to know feasting and belonging and joy? Well, we don't need to wind the clock back to the times of Solomon. We'll see next week. It went pretty disastrously wrong pretty quickly. What you need is to get to know Jesus, is to come and be among his people in his body in the church and find him, have his spirit living within you and, and know peace, know forgiveness. Know that his son, his temple, the Lord Jesus is his house of prayer, 
for all nations, whoever you are. Come to Jesus now. He's the temple. Whoever you are, come and pray to him. Wherever you are, look to him. Face your heart towards him. Whatever you've done, whatever is going on in your life, however difficult it's been, if you feel like you're in darkness, if you feel like things are coming apart and your body's falling to bits, if you feel like heaven is shut, if you feel like you're utterly defeated, well, Jesus reaches his arms out, turns his ears towards, looks with his eyes at you and offers himself to you today. I wonder if you'll turn your heart to him. I wonder if you'll turn your eyes to him. I wonder if you'll listen to him and come and know peace, come and know God, come and know feasting and come and know forgiveness. Would you do that today? Would you come to Jesus as the temple? Don't need to travel to Israel anymore. Don't need to even look towards Jerusalem. You need to look your eye, look and set your eyes on him. He is the one who is God's house of prayer for all nations. So let's pray to him now. Lord, we thank you that this is true, that this is such an old, old story, strange things about strange kings with strange buildings and Lord, many things that perhaps we don't understand, but we do understand this, that your son has been given to us, that you stretched your arms out in him and welcome us to come to yourself. So Lord, we pray that you'd help us to do that today and every day and every moment as we struggle, Lord, as we walk through darkness, even as we face death and defeat and despair, Lord, especially in those times, but Lord, all of our days, we ask that you would win our hearts over, that you would melt our hearts and turn them towards you. And that as we do that, you would turn to us and answer our prayers and bring us home to live with you and rest forever. Amen.